This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Chodesh Kislev Tov to all who observe. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Can you just say tablet like, I don't have a, ta- I, don't, I don't know. You're not deputy editor anymore? <laughs> no, last week I said I'm not. Um, and tablet something say something. Say tablet personality. Tablet, <laughs> tablet celebu, celebutor. It's, it's, called, to- it's pronounced celebrity. <laughs> Stephanie Butnick. <gasps> Great to be here. Great to have you. Celebrity spokes editor, Stephanie Butnick. This Grand week- ambassador. Stephanie Butnick. (laughs) This week on the show, we are bringing you an interview with writer Isabel Kaplan, author of the book NSFW. And Gentile of the Week, there are about a fifth of our listeners for whom this will be the most exciting guest we've ever had. Tabitha Soren, who uh, I grew up with when she was on MTV News and has since become a very noted and highly regarded photographer, art photographer. And our conversation with her as Gentile of the Week was a, a highlight of 2022 for me. I, now that the year is kind of winding down, I can say it was, it was like a top 10 interview of 2022. And those excited about this interview were sitting on the rug in the den in 1991, watching MTV and are now wondering what what happened to, they life, are, to the they, universe, to well, them. Well, they're either big photography fans or they're people who remember when Adam Sandler was on remote control. Now, Leo, you didn't get all the shows in Israel, right? Like there's stuff you got and stuff you didn't get, right? So here's the amazing thing. We actually have MTV Asia. So our shows were completely different. We got none of the shows. So there's a whole swath of things you don't know about. Oh, no, 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 no. I caught up. You caught up. You got here. I take my wannabe status very seriously. (laughs) I had people record shows and send tapes. It was a whole elaborate Is that the old thing? Like, instead of like buy things on Amazon and bring them over back to Israel. It's not like buy those electronics on the way to visit your family. It was sneaking VHSs of- of Bootleg VHSs. They came over over through Turkey, right? Like VHS tapes of Journey videos smuggled- through Turkey. Guys, you. you know how the, during, during the Soviet refusenik movement, the American Jews would go to Moscow and they would like sneak in like seven you know copies of the Bible or something to give to or poor Jews. Or Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly, it, it was Samistat for me. People are like, <laughs> hey, hey, comrade, season three of The Simpson, you like. I was like, it was thank Sandler you, thank stat. You much. Yeah, <laughs> Sandler <laughs> stat. <laughs> Stephanie Butnick, how are you? I'm good, and I have a story that I need to bring to the. I'm bringing to this quorum here, and I want to I the wanna, greater court, to the Sanhedrin of our to, listenership, to the San, to Santa's court um, on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I'm never going to live that one down. Okay. I'm sorry. Did you say Santa's court or DeSantis court? Because <laughs> both are timely. So okay, I saw some friends on Sunday, and they told me that they had been to a party on Saturday night, and it was like a festive holiday party that was like sort of waspy and like Christmassy, and so they were saying that. When they got there, they were like arrived with a bunch of other people. And the host sort of said like, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And turned to them and said, Happy Hanukkah. And this is like December 2nd or something like that. (laughs) And they were like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, is it nice that they, this has come up before, but you're like, are you thankful that someone has like, express some interest in your cultural specificity or are you like why are you othering like like why are you 
Like, you know, like it, it means that you're looking at me and is. saying you're different. It's like they saw your profile, your Jewish profile and said, Merry, happy Hanukkah to like, you. Do you mean like physical, like facial profile? Yeah, like so oh, you turn like sideways. <laughs> as you turn sideways, they said, Merry, like, happy Hanukkah to you. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Not to you. Not Merry you. Christmas. <laughs> it's just weird because then you're like, you know when someone's like saying happy holidays to you and you're like, I know you're doing that because I'm Jewish. And you're like, I think well, it's nice. But hold on, but hold on. You, you're asking, to, let's parse this Talmudically well, as this deserves the parsing. You're asking two different questions. Happy holidays is an abomination. I'm sorry. It, it is time to ban, to retire, to verboten happy holidays. It is a schwach, bloodless, insufferable, intolerable greeting. I'm sorry. I'd much rather just go with Merry Christmas, or if you are among Jews, you could say Happy Hanukkah, but like have the specificity of like, what, what are the holidays? There is no such thing as the holidays or the season's greetings. No, screw that. None of that. Scrooge that. Scrooge that. But then there's a better question. The question is, when you are in a setting such as mixed the one company, you, in mixed company, <laughs> is it more or less polite to say, you know, Happy Hanukkah to the visibly, discernibly Yidden <laughs> among the crowd, as opposed to Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, hey, Merry hey there, Christmas. Hey there, Goldbergs. Yeah, Hi, I, I think you know, I would probably have preferred the all around Merry Christmas, uh, which is a greeting that I genuinely love and, you know, warms my Jewish heart every time I hear it. But I totally understand the the nice thought behind Happy Hanukkah. I've written on this. I'm on the record saying that people should wish me a Merry Christmas. And, you know, I, I think it's fine if they want, if they don't feel comfortable doing that. And let's face it, some ordinary Jews are going to make them feel bad about it when they say Merry Christmas. Oh, it's, I'm not Christian. If you want to have a way to deal with that, come prepared to say a happy early Hanukkah to you. I mean, I, I do think if you're the host who's going to other your Jewish guests, get their holiday right, recognize that December 1st is not the time to say happy Hanukkah. Though it's really not the time to say Merry Christmas either. So It's they were not. They're, look, these are people, They, I mean, I, I don't wish them on the true Christians out there, right? Because they're having a party. They're saying Merry Christmas. Thanksgiving's barely over. Just because radio's playing the songs doesn't mean that you have to sort of jump into Just the holiday Just because radio's spirit. playing the songs that the Jews wrote, it that doesn't mean- wrote. So, you know, this is a party. If the host wants to do the right thing, I guess if you're going to say Merry Christmas, say, and a happy early Hanukkah to show that you know when, when Hanukkah is. But I didn't, I, I, when I, I wrote like about this, when I wrote about how I'm fine with Merry Christmas, I remember that after I wrote the piece, somebody said, okay, what do you respond when someone says Merry Christmas? And the answer is, I always respond, thank you. But I think we can do better. I think we I can say, do better. I and think- a an, and a gitten yontif to you too, my friend. Yeah, it's it's tough. I love Merry Christmas. Like, w- would there ever be a Jewish holiday that has Merry in front of it? Oh my God. <laughs> like, what, what is that? And a Merry Tish above to you. <laughs> yeah, like Merry, mer- merriment. Uh, I can't even say have, that word. Have, have, have a decent Rosh Hashanah. May you have just enough fun this Purim. <laughs> but Stephanie... It's interesting you bring up this question of, I mean, basically what you're saying is Jewish versus Goyish, which is a running theme on our on our show. And at Oppenshire Manor, oh. uh, just yesterday, I want to say maybe two days ago, I was driving one of my daughters somewhere and she asked me, dad, when I turn 16, can I have a sweet 16 party? And I said, well, no, of course not. I mean, I, without hesitating, I said, hell no. And she came back at me, is it because we're Jewish? 
And this was clearly something she'd put some thought into. <laughs> and what I really wanted to say, and here I'm going way out on a limb and I'm going to get crucified to use a seasonal term. You say, yes, daughter, and a very <laughs> merry sweet 16 to you. Ho, what I really ho, wanted ho. to say is like, no, because it's tacky, materialistic, and trashy. But I didn't. But I didn't because that would be judgy. But I did get to thinking about it. So then we called our friend uh, Emma who is an adult friend of mine and Sid's, but who my kids really love. I said, we were in the car. I said, let's call Emma and ask her what she thinks. You were literally phoning a friend. We phoned a friend and we said, Emma, tell us what you think about Sweet 16 parties. And Emma paused and said, literally, and and, and she's Jewish and grew up with the kind of liberal New Englandy Jews that I had as parents. And she literally said, she paused and said, I didn't have one. I didn't know anyone growing up who had one. And I can't imagine why anyone would want one. Like it, it was, unth- I'm, I could have said to her, like, are you a Jew who celebrates Ramadan? She was said, why would right. I do that? Right. It was culturally alien to her. And now I want to put this, first of all, to the two of you. And then I also want to throw it to the J crew. But what, when you hear Sweet 16 Party, what do you think? And I'll just finish by saying, looking back on high school, I think Lisa Ferguson had one. And I remember being annoyed that I wasn't invited because she was cool and, you know, Lisa Ferguson was having a party. But then someone said, oh, well, boys aren't invited. And then I remember thinking, well, what's the point of the party? Like, it's an all-girls party for 16-year-olds. What is going on? But tell me what I'm missing here, so, if okay. I'm missing anything. Here's the thing. I did have a sweet 16, but it wasn't, like, a, my super sweet 16. I think the different—I think the—I have no idea, like, what the— the genesis, so to speak, of the Sweet 16 party. If it was like, you get your confirmation and then you get the Sweet 16. Like, I don't know it as being an, a distinctly gentilic thing. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I'm turning 16. It's, we're going to call it a Sweet 16. And we like, it was like a bunch of girls in my grade. We like went for lunch. So like, it was all girls. Interesting. Um, my sister actually had a joint Sweet 16 with her friend Devin. And it was like the, when teens would like rent out a club but it was only teens there. And like we, everyone like took a bus. So it was like a big party. You could be speaking Greek to me, right? Oh, wait, teens can rent out their own clubs? No, like the parents do. I was okay. like, there's a person named Devin? <laughs> there was a girl named Devin and teens rented out a club. Okay, none carry this, on. None of this makes sense. But I'm anyway, putting it through Google all, Translator, Google Cultural Translator. All of which is to say, I don't think it actually means anything anymore. It's like your 16th birthday party is a sweet 16. And the other question that this daughter then posed to me is, do Jews not do it because we've just had a bar bat mitzvah? Yeah, we're still like writing thank yous. Is this a Gentile thing so they can have a teenage party? I don't know, Liel, have you even I'm heard halach- of it? Or is this all new to you? First of all, look, in, in Israel, we celebrate the, uh, so you're going to be in the army next year party, <laughs> uh, which is a totally different vibe. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on, on a halachic limb here and say, um, I, I deem this goyish, uh, A, because there's really only one age-related celebration, right? And once you take away from the momentousness- For boys, there are two, on, but okay. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> you're correct. For boys, there are two. Uh, eight day and eight 13 years. Eight days and 13 years. Uh, for, for women, there's one, 12. Uh, and Why so is women 12? Can we talk about this? Should we bracket it's, it's, this for a later it's date? It's Talmud. Because, much- because they're mature earlier. It's Mishnah, right? Which is, it's, which, it's, is, which, is, which, is, which is correct. I think they say women correct, are mature at 12, yeah. Which is, which is a correct observation. Now, um, if you add on to it, be like, oh, yeah, four years later, we'll do this thing. I don't know. It's kind of opening the floodgates. Then where does it end? The Sweet 16, the pretty awesome Let me guess, a big party when you turn 21. <laughs> I don't think the three of us are going to settle this. I do want to put to the J Crew, who I think 613 is a very big year. answers to this. Your 613th uh, 
celebration? Totally. Totally. Methuselah, when he turned 800, he rocked out. Please call us at 914-570-4869 or email us unorthodox at tabletmag.com and tell us, Sweet 16, Jewish or Goyesh? News of the Jews, N-O-T-J, News of the Jews. News of the Jews. Guys, I was getting so excited for News of the Jews this week because I saw this headline that said, Jonah Hill to change his name. And I thought, this to is Adam great. Sandler. This is great. <laughs> Hollywood leading man and heartthrob Jonah Hill older brother of even greater Hollywood heartthrob, Beanie Feldstein, is finally taking back his Feldstein. I thought, this is amazing. Jonah Hill to change his name. Clearly, I see, you see that headline. What could it be other than that Jonah Hill is going back to the Feldstein? He's dropping the L. He's returning to the Feldstein. This is like John Cougar becoming John Mellencamp. This is like Tandy Newton taking back her original first name. This is a major Hollywood event of ethnic reclamation and pride. Then I read the article, and here I'll quote from NBC.com. Since Jonah Hill landed his breakout role in the 2007 film Superbad, his name has been all over Hollywood as he appeared in major movies like This Is The End and The Wolf of Wall Street. But fans might be surprised to learn the actor has been using a stage name the entire time. His full name is Jonah Hill Feldstein, and on November 29th, he filed to legally have his name changed to the professional moniker. So actually what he's doing is he's going to court to finally eradicate the Feldstein and make himself officially Jonah Hill. And now I kind of hate him. It's like, dude. The final name solution. Dude, <laughs> you want you want to completely, you want to scrub the Feldstein even from your driver's license? Like, why? You want, you what want is a Judenrein name? Yeah, it's what is the point of that? It's also confusing because Beanie Feldstein, his sister, is now exceptionally famous. Yeah. So like, I like this line, but fans might be surprised to learn that he's been using a stage name. And it's like, not Jewish fans. (laughs) We're all like, his name is really Jonah Feldstein. But fans who wish you a Merry Christmas would be surprised (laughs) to learn. I thought that this was going to start a trend. I thought we were going to have Winona Ryder going Horowitz. I thought Jon Stewart was going to be Johnny Leibovitz. Honestly, he should do it. He should. If anyone should. should do it, he's come out like in this whole Dave Chappelle thing. Like he actually is at the place where he should freaking change his name back. Jon Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld should go back to Seinfeldstein. They should all go back to their original Jewish names. <laughs> okay. This next story is my favorite from JTA. Let me read from the article. Slivovitz, a plum brandy traditionally associated with Passover by many Ashkenazi Jews, has been added to the United Nations list of items with, quote, intangible cultural heritage. It is intangible when that Slivovitz hits your tongue. <laughs> it's like it's like, it's like like rubbing alcohol uh, intangible. Am I, I just it. such a goy that I don't associate Slivovitz with Pesach? Is, does, is, okay, was that known I to everyone? Do, because uh, uh, when we yeah, go yeah, no, to my aunt and uncles. That's a very big Passover. Yeah, you got it. It's a very big Pesach energy. But here, 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 I want nuance. I want to complicate this, like that layer after you find, mm. get your first sip of Slavitz when it like changes into like even more rubbing alcohol and like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the decision was made at UNESCO's conference in Morocco this week where France successfully campaigned for the inclusion of the baguette on the list. <laughs> so this is like, this is, by the way, this is how I imagine like the Unicode consortium when a new emoji right. gets added. Right. Um, okay. So it wasn't Jews leading the charge for the hard-burning brandy, JTA reports, but rather Serbia, where the spirit is a mainstay, as it is across much of the Balkans, Eastern, and Central Europe. Guys, could you imagine this meeting? 
Can you imagine this freaking <laughs> meeting? They're sitting there in a UN assembly type of room in like dead silence, like animosity, like so much tension in the air. And the French just say, the baguette. Il faut décider like, que le baguette est incroyablement merveilleux. All in favor. Vous êtes d'accord <laughs> ou non? There are 46 <laughs> hungry, 32 not so hungry. <laughs> the resolution passes. And then the Serbs are like, we'll show them. So, okay, this, this is, is actually fascinating guys. because I've, I, you know, it's like, I just assumed Slivovitz was Jewish because it was always like at the house and at the Seder. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm going to, I'm going to read you. I learned a lot about this. So basically Jews pick this up from these areas and because it's plum brandy, it was really easy for Jews to drink it because it like sort of like was a, an ultimate loophole. Mm-hmm. Uh, because because no grape is involved. Yes, uh, unlike wine, traditional no brandy, sanctity. and some types of vodka, Slivovitz is made. Slivovitz being made from plums meant the drink was not subject to the same stringent rules that apply to grape-based alcoholic beverages. Not holy, not chametz, and, and will fuck you yes, up every unlike time. Unlike beer, whiskey, and types of other types of vodka, it had mm. it has no wheat or other grains, so you can drink it on Passover. Are you are you picking a fight with the Serbian Stephanie and saying, "Look, it, you might have started it, but it's ours now, bitches." But we're downing the rest. <laughs> we're glug glug glugging. Specifically, Polish Jews for many, many, many years. You know, this this was a complete staple. I mean, look in in, in my household, we start drinking it in like February or March, like <laughs> a month and a half before Pesach. We're like, "Yep." <laughs> when you say this household, I imagine like your whole family doing it, like your kids too. They all have beards. We all sit there and drink Slivovitz around the wooden table. <laughs> They're all bored with Liel as a three-year-old <laughs> has the Liel beard. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> and he's stroking it as he dribbles Slivovitz down his beard. It's like, um, it's daughter, the there is Slivovitz in your beard. It's at the age where the Cossacks come. And you get it at the age of three after your first haircut. They had you your slivy cup. They put a yarmulke oh on you. I want a give slivy you cup so bad right now. Cup. Can we please make like... Stephanie, really as my boss, will you okay my expensing my first bottle of Slivovitz? I've never had it. We should do it soon. Guys, do you see do you see do you see it behind my do you see it over my shoulder? I right do, now? I do, I do, I do. It's right, it's right here. <laughs> Friends, write to us and tell us uh what's your Slivovitz what else? style? No, what else should we add? What other Jewish right. things should be on the UNESCO list? <laughs> Which that means one mafia right? ball that was really good that time. <laughs> uh, Isabel Kaplan joined Stephanie Botnick to talk about her newest book, NSFW. And if you like this interview, as you will, Isabel will be joining Stephanie at the New York Jewish Book Festival on December 11th at a fun happy hour book panel, where they will also be drinking, partying, and talking books with the incredible former JOTW, Sloan Crosley. So if you enjoy this conversation between Stephanie and Isabel Kaplan, come out and see them on December 11th. And guess what? I'll be there too. Have a listen. Isabel Kaplan, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much for having me. So this is fun for a number of reasons. Your new book, NSFW, is great, and we will get to that. But first, I want to start with lunch. You and I just had lunch before this interview. I want the li- I want to be fully transparent with our listeners. We did. We had eaten. But something happened at lunch, which was that our food didn't come for a really long time. And neither of us said anything until really, really, really late when we were like, I think it's and no one else is here. So then finally, like almost an hour has passed. They come by and, and I think Meekly said like, 
do you know where our food is? And it turns out they hadn't gotten our order. I want to like unpack that situation with you. Like, are we the people that just like don't say anything? Uh, Yes, we are women. (laughs) (laughs) That would be correct. I, I mean, I think this is such a good example of the ways that we are taught to assert ourselves, but in a really careful way that is also not upsetting or inflammatory to anyone. And that if we are uncomfortable, it is much easier for us to just hold on to all that discomfort than make anyone else uncomfortable or feel bad. Because then, I don't know about you, but for me, if I then make someone else feel bad, then I will feel obligated to address in some way they're feeling bad. And then, it, you know, that's extra on top of my feeling bad. And it's easier if I just swallow <laughs> all of this discomfort. But like, that's also a terrible way to feel. And yeah, we just sat there. And she <laughs> she did a apologize, but we also didn't say, you know, yes, we literally have somewhere else to be, which is here doing this. And instead it was, you know, no, no, take your time. It's fine. And then I feel bad because I'm like, I don't want you to be in trouble for this. Not you personally. I don't care about you, Isabel, or me, Stephanie. I felt bad for the woman who's taking our order, whose circumstances were probably worse than ours, right? In many ways. And so it was like, I don't want you to get in trouble, which for something which like maybe I didn't say it loud enough when you But how many men do you know who would (laughs) think through any of that versus just, I wanted my food. I didn't get my food. This is really inconvenient and inconsiderate. And I need you to know how bad this was to me. How many people do you know who would do that and how many of them are women? It's an excellent question. And I think that nicely brings us to your book, NSFW, which sort of it does sort of follow along with one young woman who is sort of dealing with all of this stuff, like when to speak up on matters large and small and like how to be heard in society, in the workplace, in your family. I mean, tell us about the book. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate description of it. It's about a 22-year-old recent college grad who is trying to make her way in Hollywood, and she arrives as, you know, thinking of herself as she's not an ingenue, she's not innocent, she, you know, she knows just how skewed the playing field is and just what's wrong with everything, and she thinks that knowledge is going to be useful to her. And spoiler alert, it is not, because I think it's really easy to know about things in theory, and then when you're faced with them in the moment in reality, you behave differently. And I I know that's true of myself and it's true even after I literally wrote a book on it. I will still find myself sometimes receiving uncomfortable comments and smiling and not thinking of how I might have responded until much, much later. And I think there's something particularly insidious about the ways, and maybe it's changing now, but, you know, when you and I were growing up of like the ways that young women were told that we were empowered And we were told, you know, this is what empowerment looks like. Look, you're doing it. This is empowering. And it wasn't empowering so much as it was like giving us just a very specific shape we needed to fit into. And I had this belief that if everything I did and said was unimpeachable at all times, then I would be empowered and free and, you know, no one could hold anything against me. But that's an insane way to live. And what I thought of as empowerment was in a lot of ways just obedience and just, you know, doing a really good job at complying with all of these, you know, very rigid restrictions that all these structures that I was living in required of me and without questioning it. Because I thought that if I just, you know, played by the rules for long enough, then I'd get enough power to change the rules. But you can't do that for that long without it becoming who you are. Like, at what point is that just, you know— It's just how I'm acting on the outside. That's who you are. And that's very corrosive. And a big theme in this book is whether our protagonist is going to try to change the system from within, the system here being sort of like the Hollywood studio, but, you know, more broadly, there is, you know, culture at large, or burn it all down. And I think that we see really 
compelling cases for her doing both. And I think the obedience thing that you just mentioned, that's exactly what it is, right? Like she sort of wants to burn it all down, but knows she probably should. She should and she shouldn't. I mean, how does that tension sort of reveal itself and maybe resolve itself? I don't know that it does resolve itself. Um, I think the issue is that, you know, so what if you realize by the end that you want to burn it all down? Can you? And if you do, then, you know, then what? Then what are you supposed to do? And I think it's hard not to get pretty pessimistic and nihilistic about the, like, you know, this is set in Hollywood, but I think it applies to any institution, to anyone who has ever had a corporate bureaucracy or a boss or lived in any structure that is patriarchal. So that's like all of us, (laughs) everyone. But I, I don't know that anything can be salvaged. I mean, I think I've definitely went from in my early 20s thinking, you know, there's a possibility of change because you have to believe in change to thinking, you know, how? Like, how can any of this be changed? It's all designed to work this way. And we're designed, we are taught that any failure to make the change we want to see is ours alone, as opposed to, you know, of course you couldn't make change. It's structurally designed for you to be incapable of changing it. Like, that's how a corporation works. That's what the HR department's for. Like, it's all set up to stop you from making real change. And I don't know. I'm in a real burn it down place. So I don't know that I have any good (laughs) optimistic lessons from that. Well, I think you actually might have some lessons for us because the character in this book is an assistant at one of these studios. You had a similar job yourself, as you've spoken about. There's a lot of like lunch orders, perfecting lunch orders, perfecting drink orders, and the little things you could do to really like make your day good because you've pleased someone else. But I also think there may be like a skill to knowing exactly which person wants what milk alternative in their coffee. Yeah, well, I think this actually dovetails very nicely into our lunch situation today (laughs) because so much of it is about managing other people's comfort and discomfort and making sure that other people are comfortable at all times. And even if the things that will make them comfortable are ridiculous, like, you know, this person only wants green dentine ice gum, you know, no other kind, but you know that if you remember that and get that, they will be nice to you. And so much of being an assistant is learning how to navigate between people's egos and to do that emotional labor. And I think there is a skill to that. And that's also how you can both get ahead professionally, but also just on a day-to-day level, make your day better. And there's something really bleak about that because I think, you know, the amount of time I spent sitting on the edge of my seat trying to anticipate what anyone else wanted, and also trying to anticipate how someone's, you know, bad behavior could be mitigated by me was immense. And that's, you know, that's how I I and most assistants spend most of our days. It's reactive and then trying to just triage disasters before they happen. That's so depressing, but it also sounds sort of like what you were saying before, that like we've sort of been conditioned for this in that kind of messed up way, which is like, oh, you're so empowered, go do all this stuff. But were you kind of kind of good at this stuff? Like, didn't it sort of feel familiar, this work you were doing, the jockeying for the perfect lunch and trying not to? Like, haven't we kind of always been doing this in our lives? Absolutely. No, I mean, and I was really good at it. And I was sort of surprised by how good I was at it because I also hadn't thought of that as, you know, a skill set. Like, when I was trying to apply for jobs, I didn't think of, I wouldn't have thought to say any of those things that, like, 
I'm really good at dealing with people who don't have boundaries and ask too much of me. And I'm good at saying yes to things. And I'm really bad at saying no to things. But I'm good at making you think that whatever you're asking for is reasonable and I will do it immediately. Like, yes, that's one of my main skill sets that I had not thought of as a skill set. It was more a coping mechanism and like a survival tactic. But yeah, I think and I think that's baked into, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people, and it's a very, very gendered. Um, and it's not, you know, exclusively gendered, but I think there are expectations of women that are different than men, that, you know, the like being agreeable and cheerful and going above and beyond, that you, you're going to like do what it takes. And, you know, if above and beyond is predicting what someone wants for lunch before they tell you, that's an insane thing to have to do, to guess that, like, well, he hasn't had chicken in two days, so he might want chicken <laughs> today, but he had brown rice yesterday, so maybe vegetables. Like, that takes up an immense amount and of mental time. maybe then he'll read the thing, the project you want to bring to them. Yeah, like maybe then when I have something to say that's, like, actually relevant, he will listen, but that's, pause and take a step back and listen to that and think about it, you realize, like, wait, those things don't necessarily go together. And someone who will ask you to do all these personal things is not necessarily going to, like, you're not earning a certain kind of professional respect. You know, something I've talked about a lot on this show, um, once I started actually talking on this show, uh, was about <laughs> finding my voice and yeah. having two loud and boisterous male co-hosts who love to talk and and my own journey of sort of, like, trusting my voice and getting my voice heard. And the character in your book is a young woman. There's sort of an intergenerational drama between her and her mother and how they see the world. But the thing that I was surprised by is I started hearing from people after I shared this. I heard from young women who were sort of like, this was really helpful to hear. I have the same problem in my workspaces as a younger person. But I actually also heard from women of all ages who weren't just saying, oh, I'm new to the workforce and therefore less, you know, lower on the totem pole. Women who throughout all stages of their lives and in their careers are sort of faced with this because the room doesn't have to be like the boardroom, whatever that even is anymore post-pandemic. The, the room is is every room. So now you're a novelist, right? You're not in the studio anymore. You're in all sorts of other rooms. I mean, what do you what have you taken from this experience of sort of plumbing all of these feelings to become who you are now? And also what do you what do you have to how do you help help the rest of us? I mean, I think I relate to a lot of that stuff you just said about the finding your voice and the challenges there. And and the truth is that, you know, I wasn't saying most of these things out loud. You know, right now in writing in, you know, the past two months since it's been out is the first time I have given voice to a lot of these feelings in a way that is bigger than just, you know, with my friends at drinks and venting. Blowing off steam. Blowing off steam. Yeah. And I think when I was in my 20s and working as an assistant, I wasn't asserting, I, I mean, I was asserting myself in ex what I gauged to be exactly the amount I could and should, and was very good at gauging what I could and couldn't say. But the place I put all my outrage and frustrations, you know, was a Word document. <laughs> and and I think that's probably because that's always been my vehicle for expression, and also because I've always wanted to understand something completely and know exactly what I'm saying. But I think there's something gendered about that, too, that, like, I felt that I needed to make sure that I had what I wanted to say exactly right, exactly perfect, so that no one could poke holes in my argument. No one, like, you know, I didn't tweet. There's, like, writing a book takes so many years, and it's so many times that I was like, I need to make sure that I have covered all aspects of this and that I understand it fully so no one can— say that there's anything that I am not aware of and that, you know, every negative thing 
I I am in control of that, and I'm going to do it as fiction because because I prefer writing fiction. But I deliberately wrote it as a novel, which was the only way I think that I was actually able to write freely because otherwise I would have been too concerned about how this makes me sound and if this is about me and if this reflects things. And I needed to be divorced in some way. But what's strange now is that, you know, I've published this book. I am talking to you and others about how I think basically everything should be burned down and every (laughs) system is corrupt and there is no such thing as an ethical institution. And I keep saying that out loud, but I still sort of work in this field. And, you know, the job I have now is is different. I am, you know, running book-to-film development at an agency, so I'm sort of straddling publishing in Hollywood, but I'm still in meetings with Hollywood people, and I'm still pitching things, and I will still find myself in situations where I hear things on Zoom, and I don't say anything because what is there to say? I mean, I was on a Zoom recently, a big Zoom, where someone described a female writer, you know, trying to say that they're very good at working collaboratively with people. And she was described as being very (laughs) user-friendly. And I didn't know how, like, I didn't know what kind of bad that was, but it felt very bad. But also, what was there for me to do? To, you know, interrupt the room and say, excuse me, did you just call a woman user-friendly? You know, can we unpack Because then you're that woman. Then I'm that woman. And then, then that's uncomfortable for all of us. And then, because these days, no one wants to be offensive, And everyone would, it would become a whole thing. And it still seemed in that moment like the easier thing to do was to just, you know, feel deeply uncomfortable and then slack my colleagues after saying you wouldn't believe. But that's, you know, after publishing a whole book about subtle sexism in the workplace. And the only solution I've come up with so far, which is not a solution, is just to talk about it more. To like the more we can all talk about it the better, but I still don't have an answer for what you're supposed to do when you're sitting in that room. You know, also, like, why should we have to be the behavior police? That's another obligation that, you know, it's up to us to say, excuse me. And to say it in a way that doesn't, that makes people like you still and want to work with you. Yeah, that doesn't antagonize me. That doesn't make me the angry woman in the corner because I still need this job. Yeah, there's (laughs) like, of course, like, that's what she's doing. And I think it's, hard to figure out what's acceptable and what's not. And the amount of time I spend thinking about what's acceptable (laughs) and what's not is exactly the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. So, I mean, have you, you know, the book is out. It's it's making a splash. Have you heard from anyone that used to work with you? Do they read books? Like, have you heard from people from your past life in Hollywood? I have. I mean, I haven't heard from all of them. And I'm sure there are discussions that I am not being clued in on. But the people I've heard from are mostly people who, you know, were assistants with me and worked in the trenches with me. And and that's been wonderful to hear from. You know, I have not heard from any more senior people I worked with. And so I, you know, have no idea. I receive Instagram likes. So, you know, insofar <laughs> as that's approval. But I, I mean, and it is. <laughs> but do I know if anyone's read it? I have no idea. And I know not to assume anyone has read books ever anymore. But so far, it's been it's been very supportive and nice. And I think there's been a lot of nice comments and also a lot of nice comments from people who don't work in anything near Hollywood who feel that, you know, the workplace structure feels familiar to them, which is really nice to hear. And of course, this is a novel, right? The character has a similar job to a job that you had in your life. I intentionally wanted to start this conversation with me creating content out of our lunch and rehashing it in a different way and then putting it on you to sort of respond to it and perpetuate this 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 merging of re- reality and 
product, right? So like we had the lunch, something happened, we came on the podcast, we're talking about it. I mean, I imagine for you as a novelist, you're always finding inspiration in real life. So what is that like for you to sort of toe the line, to use things that may have happened or may have not happened, may have you've seen happening, and then to put them in a book that you know everyone is reading? I mean, how do you sort of toe that line? I know everyone, I feel like with, particularly with female novelists, is always like, so this is true, right? Um, do you feel that pressure? Um, I think what's interesting is, you know, as I am living experiences, I take notes, you know, I, I you know, journal compulsively, but I don't generally try to narrativize anything until much later because I think, you know, if I try to write something too soon after it happens, I do feel this need to stick close to what actually happened because, you know, this is how it happened. But the truth is there's a big difference between something, you know, something happened to me and then is this part of a story and is this part of a novel? And and the truth is, you know, over the course of drafting this novel, you know, there were many scenes and situations I had been in. A lot of that got cut with me, like, dragging my heels for some of it, being like, no, 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 this is so important because it happened. But the truth was, at the end, you know, I had to create a story, and the story was fictional. And then you have to decide, like, okay, does this serve these characters? It's been almost an hour. serve this narrative and this story? And I think, you know, there's always the slippery place of, you know, will people assume everything happened to me? And as I was writing, I sort of had to not think about that, because if you write as if people are going to assume it's you, then you don't share anything interesting. You don't, and you don't go into the, you know, the really messy gray areas. And that's what I'm most interested in. I don't want, you know, moral virtue. I want all the messy complexities of, you know, give me the ugly truths of how it really feels. Isabel Kaplan, I'm so happy to be talking with you. The book is NSFW. It is exceptional. It is a novel. It is great. Um, And I hope that you come back on the show and have lunch with me again. I would love to have lunch with you again. And, you know, hopefully we'll get our food faster. How about this? I think I ordered a long time ago. Do you know where our food is? Or is that upstate? You went up at the end. (laughs) We'll get it. Yeah, we'll we'll get it. Excuse me, we've been waiting for quite a while. But still, that's not a, that's just a statement. That's not asking someone to do anything. That's true. I will not let you qualify it. Our listeners should buy this book. Please. NSFW by Isabel Kaplan. Thanks for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Frances Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Dear M.M., Massachusetts Mark. <laughs> Whoa, it's coming on spicy here. Calling a Connecticut person a nutmegger is an insult. It brings up memories Whoa. of scandal. People from Connecticut became infamous by selling counterfeit nutmegs made of wood. Shame. <laughs> we are Connecticut Yankees. Henry Rosenberg, now of 413 Northampton, formerly 203 Bridgeport. Henry, first of all, you, Henry Rosenberg, are not a Connecticut Yankee. I hate to be the first to tell you, but no, Rosenberg is a Connecticut Yankee. Second of all, you are the first person ever to tell me why Connecticut is called the nutmeg state. I had no idea. And I don't think anyone else does either. And I feel confident that it doesn't bring up memories for anybody of selling counterfeit nutmegs. If I believe you that that's the story, but I just know that we're the nutmeg state and it couldn't be too shameful because we're the nutmeg state. And lots of people call us nutmeggers. So I, you know, Henry, I appreciate your prissy punctiliousness about it, but I, I am not apologizing. I'm sorry. Massachusetts, Mark, I have one other thing. I really just want to talk about the phrase Connecticut person, <laughs> which is like the best thing it's I've like, ever heard. Like, like Florida man's. <laughs> right, right. Connecticut person. That pretty much does sum up how not cool we are. Connecticut What a person. great song this would be. Connecticut person. Shine his light on you. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on 691 West, going to Cheshire. Stephanie Butnick, will you take the next letter, please? Dear Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, on the very first conversion episode back in 2018, Mark started off the conversation by asking Stephanie and Liel if they thought of converts as a different kind of Jew. Without even a pause for breath, Liel replied, not for one second. He continued, and this is in quotes, not in any imaginable, conceivable way, not at all. I was driving northbound on 95 and abruptly burst into tears. This episode happened to come at a pivotal moment. I had only recently started to tell people that I had decided to convert, and the responses had not been very supportive thus far. In fact, in the week before I heard this episode, two people, both deeply engaged in my life in different ways and both Jews, had dismissed the very idea of my conversion by scoffing that most Jews would not even think I was Jewish after, so why bother? I was taken aback, offended, and disheartened, but thankfully not dissuaded. To hear the opposite response on the conversion episode of my beloved podcast, well, it meant a lot. I quickly got back on track. After multiple delays in the last few years, including the adoption of my daughter and the goddamn pandemic, I head to the mikvah next week. Like many others, unorthodox has been a huge part of my Jewish education, not to mention the development of the extended mishpacha. I am grateful to all of you, but Liel, a very special thank you to you. Your words helped to stitch my heart back together. Thank you, Gigi from Philadelphia. Gigi, hmm. 
welcome home. And I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> Is it even raining? I hadn't noticed. Hey, Mark, Stephanie, and Leo. Let me preface this by saying I'm not Jewish, but studying Judaism and Hebrew and heading toward conversion. So this still feels slightly anti-Semitic to what I'm about to write. Emoji, LOL. When you talked about KFC Germany and Kristallnacht and then corporate sponsorship and concentration camps, I came up with these. I'm a fan of alliteration, so Dachau Dunkin' Donuts. Very good. Yanoska Jack in the Box. Pretty great. <laughs> Tim Hortons Treblinka, which is really a thing that should exist. And my personal favorite, the Bergen Taco Belzen. Or just Taco Belzik. Uh, how is there not a Taco Belzin? If you could get Mel Brooks on the podcast, I'm sure he would come up with brilliant suggestion. Shalom, Wendy. Wendy, you know, honestly... So Wendy's not Jewish yet, but she's already this, making the Jewish you're jokes. You're, you're, you're full just in. Just show this to the baked in, and exactly. I think they would fast track you. <laughs> I have to say that my grandparents, who met in the displaced persons camp at Bergen-Belsen... Um, <laughs> I don't know how they would feel about this. I I want to think they would find Taco Belson funny. You mean well? I mean the fact that your grandfather actually shyly approached your grandmother holding two gorditas in his hand would would make it very relevant. Only because the line over the Tim Hortons Treblinka was too long. <laughs> Tabitha Soren is the object of many of my teenage obsessions. She is now a super acclaimed photographer and a former reporter for MTV, ABC, and NBC. She joined Mark to talk about her recent collection, Surface Tension, and how she approaches her work as an artist. Wish I was there. Have a listen. Tabitha Soren, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about the photos that I read about in The New Yorker. The exhibit was called Surface Tension. And can you explain to people what the process was that you used to make those photographs? I know it's hard to talk about photography, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. It's not that hard. Good. Um, so I used a 19th century technology called the view camera, which most people would be familiar with perhaps from seeing old photos of Ansel Adams underneath a black cloth behind a giant camera. I used one of those cameras, which is very simple. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to use it. And the reason I did that is because it has an eight inch by 10 inch negative. And so that allows me to blow up pictures very large without losing detail. And so I just kept copious notes about what was in my web history. And I saved through screenshots, pictures that people had uh, sent to me either through texts or emails and I used pictures of the screenshots as a way to question how much time we are spending touching screens and interacting with technology um, instead of paying attention to each other and touching each other. And then through research into the sense of touch, which you can see in these pictures very well because the fingerprints are so magnified that they're almost like surveillance images. I've found that in the research that touch is actually the sense that we know least about. I think a year ago, the Nobel Prize in Science went to scientists who were studying the sense of touch. So I think it is something that really gets at the perhaps the lack of humanity 
that is involved in giving over our attention to technology and to screens so much. So I felt like it was a nice, you know, I'm basically taking pictures of fingerprints and bacteria and sweat and, you know, metaphorically tears and all the messiness of human beings. And that's in sort of direct contrast to the clean oleophobic Apple devices that I'm on right now, for example. Wait, I just learned a new word. Oleophobic. Is that the word? Yeah, it means oil resistance. Pretty good, huh? I had no idea. I love it when I learned a new word. So, but there must have been some temptation in throwing some sort of skepticism toward the digital world to do this as a as an analog project or, a, you know, a, a fully film project, but you didn't. So that must have been a choice. I mean, there is skepticism throughout the project because I do feel like, at least for me personally, my brain is hijacked all the time. I find that I'm distracted from things that I really want to do or people I really care about. So that is baked in, but it's not an anti-technology project exactly. And, you know, I'm not really a gearhead. I came to photography, relatively speaking, late in life. So I just kind of use the equipment that will visualize my idea best. And in this case, I think the inciting photograph was a goodnight kiss from my daughter. But instead of actually coming upstairs and kissing me goodnight, she sat in her bunk bed and put her iPad up to her face and took a screenshot of her blowing me a kiss goodnight. And then she emailed it upstairs. You know, I was on my screen laying in bed or reading a book or something. And I thought, this gets to the heart of what I'm talking about. Like we have missed an opportunity here to connect or see how your day was or, and just never mind the physical connection. If you have gentle, positive touch, skin to skin contact, it sets off a whole series of empathetic, compassionate, hormonal brain chemistry in each of us. So it's not really just as simple as the physical presence being close together. It actually is biological as well. I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but the Warriors and Cal did a study and there was one in London as well with with a different sports team. And they studied how often their players physically touched each other in a positive way during a game instead of just saying, you know, great shot or whatever basketball players say to each other. (laughs) They were either fist pumped or like chest bumped each other. And that increased the score every single time. The more they physically touched each other, the more points they scored. So that's another way that's of getting amazing. idea. That's amazing. So I think I'm interested in the, the ideas that are in my head. I know they come from my background, definitely my television training. Uh, I used to be a television journalist and some of the cinematic look of the images comes from that. I think that I also draw on growing up in the military and sort of dealing with this idea of life hinging on threat. But I also, as a journalist, when I have an idea, I tend to go to research and studies to buffer and validate what I'm thinking. So, you know, Gia Tolentino, who wrote the essay for my book and wrote the essay in The New Yorker, when I read her book, Trick Mirror, and of course had been reading her work in The New Yorker, I just thought, oh my gosh, kindred spirit, we're thinking along the same lines. She's not anti-technology, but she does think that, you know, it's not you are what you pay attention to. So so how are all these images infecting us and affecting us? Are our souls actually designed to know about every unsolvable problem in the world every 24 hours? I'm not sure that's the case. So why aren't you anti-technology then? What's the good stuff about it or what keeps you from being a curmudgeon? Oh my God, because I could never, I, I mean- 
my artist process relies so much on seeing what other art is out there. I'm in San Francisco, so I'm not in London or New York or Paris. And so um, I have less access to the contemporary art that I want to see. I am a mother. And so I cannot just roam the streets like Lee Friedlander until, you know, I happen across some genius street image. So I do a lot of scouting online. I do a lot of research online. I make connections and have Zooms with other artists and create community online. There's a lot of wonderful magic there. Virginia Heffernan's book called Magic and Loss, I think gets at the dichotomy very well. You know, it is magic. And, you know, there's, a, there's another writer who I adore named Judith Thurman, another New Yorker writer, but she's also written screenplays and stuff too. And I think it's a basic human need to be on this planet and be striving toward something out of your own immediate universe. And I mentioned Judith Thurman because she's written a lot about cave paintings and no one knows what the motivation of those original artists was for making uh, cave paintings. People think of the animals, but in fact, Judith told me that most of them are handprints. And I can only think of the surface tension pictures now in terms of contemporary cave paintings. We're just grasping at these devices, searching for something outside our quotidian, perhaps mediocre universe. And I think technology really can be an avenue toward magic. When I was very little, well, not, I don't know how little, I don't know, I don't know how old I was when Sally Mann's photographs of her daughter were everywhere. And I remember thinking, I loved them so much. And I remember one of the first serious intellectual kind of contretemps I engaged in, like reading journals, was over whether that was ethical you know, that she put her children in these sometimes kind of eroticized, sometimes violent type situations. I recently read her memoir, which is amazing. And amazing. One of the best, you can't believe she, she's as good a writer as she is a photographer. <laughs> I know. It's completely unfair. Totally. How do any of us get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, that and Bruce Springsteen's memoir, which are two of the greatest yeah. books I have ever read. Anyway, you were saying a moment ago how you posed people. And it was very beautiful reading about how much you had to pose that poor girl to get that stuff, how much artifice there was. But you've also photographed your children um, and your husband has written about your children as I've written about my children. How do you think about the ethics of that? It is a complicated issue making art about your children or with your children's consent, depending on how old they are. Uh, I haven't really based any projects solely on my children in the way Sally Mann has. I think that what children consent to when they're young and how they feel about it when they get older can be very different. So I think that's really tricky territory. I have a series called Mother Load, during which I had a camera mounted over my bed during the first year of my son's life because I was so terrified of losing my identity for the third time and knowing that I was going to be confined basically to nursing and changing diapers and trying to sleep whenever he slept. And the whole process of newborn life, I just found really hard. And of course, it's all amplified by sleep deprivation. So I had never seen pictures of that before, of that mental state. And in this case, because as a baby, he kind of looks, all babies kind of look alike. I hate to say it. I felt like in that case, there wasn't a moral issue to contemplate. I felt like most uncomfortable about having me in the pictures. 
And actually, when I was finished with the work, I put it away thinking these were sort of very quotidian. They were cluttered with baby objects and they were just not the type of fine art photograph that I had in mind. But I felt like it was good that I tried. And then during COVID, I opened a safe and found all these images in there and they mattered to me. And I think they they were more meaningful to me for a couple of reasons. And one of them was that during COVID, I think women really got the short end of the stick. And then in addition, more artists were talking about the struggle between being a mom and being an artist. So I felt like it was almost okay to think about it more and work on it. And I think when I shot them, I was afraid of not being taken seriously because the art business, like any business, is not keen on women being pregnant and being sort of a part-time worker or being distracted by their kids or however they want to excuse it. So I was also a much more accomplished artist by the time I took them out of the safe. And what I realized was that individually, the pictures were not art, but if I layered 400 of them on top of each other, it completely visualized the mental state you have when you're nursing and sleep deprived. You are that foggy, you are that baby brain or whatever you want to call it. And also you are, you feel vaguely invisible. And so when you have these true authentic feelings and experiences, and then the way to visualize them pops up in your head, that is just like such a happy moment. And I'm not sure that during newborn life, that I was equipped to do that because I just was functioning, you know, I was barely getting by. So it's generated a lot of, a lot of material. Yeah. I've seen them on the website. They're really, they're really beautiful. And did you find that as somebody getting out of TV work, did you have a kind of layer of self-consciousness? I was going to say vanity, but I almost mean self-consciousness because you're so under the microscope. Did it take a while for that to dissipate before you stopped looking around thinking I'm a civilian now? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I think that I, I did sort of a slow tapering off <laughs> that helped because I don't really remember feeling that way. A couple of things that occur to me in an answer to that question. One is I was never like the Babylonia on MTV. You know, I was just like the reporter. And yes, I could not have hair in my face when I was doing a stand-up, but there were very few people you know, adjusting a button or anything silly fashion-y like that, thankfully. And then secondly, I left MTV and NBC, I was working for both of them, to do a night fellowship at Stanford. And so I had a year of being on a campus where I wasn't all that aware of people knowing who I was or not. I was 30 and I think most college students, you know, probably like early 20s. So I didn't feel like I was being watched or examined. I felt like the old person in the room or in the class, the freshman Shakespeare introductory class that I had never made time for at NYU. It just was a slow unraveling. But in addition, I think that what I discovered over time, being like from age 20 to age 30, is I'm sort of an introvert. Being noticed was not the part of TV that I missed. The part of television news that I missed was you know, sort of being on the inside of a story, know what, knowing what was going on in the White House before other people or feeling like you could have an effect on the number of people who were voting or, you know, what the curfew laws were or the anti-smoking campaign was or, you know, what have you. That, that part of the work I missed. But being stared at in a restaurant, happy to give up. It's amazing to me looking back at some of those old spots how much news MTV gave us relative to what so many 
youth-oriented outlets would give us now, which would be, you know, trending on social. Right. But everybody's audience, everybody's audience is smaller, right? I mean, they can get it from a thousand different places. It's a really hard comparison to make. And, and yeah, I don't expect anyone to think that MTV had a, you know, an advocacy journalism role now. I always feel like I need to explain it from the get-go because most of the time people are bemoaning MTV not playing music anymore, which I also agree with, but there's so many other places it's hard to complain. Um, I really kind of like niche programming. It, it goes against all of my, the mainstream aspect of having three network news channels plus CNN, Fox, and you know MTV or something alternative was never my bag. The more successful I got, the more mainstream the scripts got, the more the wider the audience got, but it also like dumbed down the material and it made me want to, you know, go work for This American Life or make documentaries or I'm very enthusiastic to this day about super niche programming that, you know, it just like excites me to no end to hear somebody, you know, being super passionate about artisanal pencils. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm sure there are people, right? You, you probably didn't make that up. Artisanal pencils must no, be a, I didn't make must that be up. a thing. So um, you grew up in the military. I guessed as I don't think I knew that, except that I saw you had some time in San Antonio, and my parents were married when my dad was at Fort Sam Houston, and ah. and then you had seven or eight other cities. So I thought, okay, this is a military brat. My wife works; she defends veterans. She works for Veterans Legal Aid, and so she, you know, she comes on with these incredibly moving stories of veterans in the military. Tabitha, you live in a part of the country and work in an industry that can both be very reflexively anti-military, and you know, people have such suspicions of soldiers. And I wonder if that's ever been hard for you, or if you ever find yourself confronting stereotypes that neighbors or colleagues have about who would be a soldier, um, people who have ideas that don't comport with your own experience. I think that me being a military brat does not come up in conversation very often. I've only recently began to understand how much it is connected to the anxiety and the dread and the um, darkness in my work. I think that Berkeley in the Bay Area is a place where I almost feel like a Republican. So to your point, I mean, it, it is just like a spectrum, right? Like you go so far to the left that I definitely am not <laughs> as, as much of a lefty as many of my neighbors. But I would say that both of my daughters played softball. Once they joined travel teams, you end up traveling all over the state you live in. Absolutely. More Trump moms on the soccer sidelines. That's where you meet America is the travel teams. Softball introduced us to California Republicans in a big way. And honestly, also people wanting to win. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of fragile flowers yes. on the Berkeley fields. And so getting out of Berkeley was the way that Dixie ended up getting recruited by Pomona to play college softball. She was a total, you know, fierce princess warrior. And Berkeley sports did not teach her that. <laughs> you would not move to the right city for her, for her inner warrior. <laughs> no. So what are you working on now? Like what's the next, you probably have a bunch of projects at once, but I'm curious what your, what of your own work you're most passionate about right now? I would say that I am in a state where I'm making a little bit of a shift. I have work that I have been 
I've been working on a project called Some Blows Are Heavy for a little while. And um, it definitely has to do with the grief I'm feeling over the death of my daughter. And I feel like my feeling that we are all on the edge of the abyss, we just don't know it, preceded Dixie's car crash. But that obviously brings it to the forefront. So I'm trying to make these photographs that are not instances where I push the shutter and the truth comes in through the light and hits the sensor or the negative and, you know, presents this specific moment related to the outside world. What I'm trying to actually portray is an emotional truth. You know, photography is very good at being specific, and I'm trying to actually push against that but I'm trying to do it with materials that aren't usually used in photography. And that's not going to be interesting to anyone, but an artist. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, it's, it feels like I'm doing science more than art at this point. And I think right now I'm also trying to take a breath because it has been an incredibly hard year and a half. My work is in four museums in the United States and two in Europe on display right now. And I have a commercial gallery show in Atlanta. So I kind of felt like, you know, do I always have to be racing toward the next thing? Like maybe having my work up in all these places and yet still have people emailing me about a Tupac interview I did 20 years ago. Like maybe I could just really think hard about the next stage and not, you know, be in competition with myself. I guess I am working on new work but it, it takes a really long time. Like surface tension took seven years to put together. I work on them consecutively. I have learned the hard way not to just have, you know, the start and finish of one project and then start another one because then you're freaked out that you're never going to have another good idea. Oh, I know that. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine ending a book or something would be like that. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. This has been awesome. It's an honor. Mazel tovs. And my mazel tov. My mazel tov is to the whole community at Princeton's Center for Jewish Life, which is their fancy name for their Hillel. I was there last Friday night. I was talking about uh, Tablet Studios podcast, Gate Crashers, about the history of Jews in the Ivy League. And I was hosted by the extraordinary Rabbanum, Rabbi Ira, uh, who may be the youngest Ira in the world. There aren't a lot of Iras left. The guy's like 29 and he's an Ira. Uh, and Rabbi Gill. And also all of these amazing, funny, smart, brilliant students who came out uh, to have dinner with me at the kosher kitchen there, to, to daven with me. I got there in time for Kabbalat Shabbat and to talk with me afterwards and to challenge me. You're saying Ruach was very, very strong. Ruach was so, okay, there were about 20 people in the conservative Kabbalat Shabbat minion. It, it thundered. It sounded like there were a hundred in there and they danced and they sang and it was, it was hardcore. It was really, really hardcore. Um, Avi Chesler, Viva Schwartz, Rafi Gold, Abigail Leibowitz, um, a couple Gentile students from Princeton Theological Seminary came over, Sue Ann Shaw and Priya Sridhar. Uh, it, was, it was just phenomenal. And in particular, I would like to give a shout out to Kayla Jerkovitz's parents, Suzanne and Jason, who I understand are leading the J. Crew 
in Edison, New Jersey. They are big fans of Unorthodox. I think they told Kayla to go hear me. And now I count her in the J. Crew. Guys, it's a short drive away. Come come hang with us. It, come York. hang with us to the Jerkoviches and to everyone. Come vodkas at Barney Greengrass. Turned out at Princeton last week. I couldn't have been more honored. So much fun to hang with students. I hope I get to do it more. I'd like to extend two masaltos. One for each one of my children. To my daughter, Lily, who this week accomplished something none of the Libavai had ever done before and got herself a straight A report card. Uh, <laughs> I, I had to look at this object for about 15 minutes before I understood what I was looking at because I think there was maybe one A throughout my academic career. So the letter was just unfamiliar to me in the context of an academic document. It's an olive. Yeah, what, what is this? A what? A what I what are we talking about? Did you get the bumper sticker that says my child clearly can't be my child? My my honor student <laughs> right. is descended from other people. Murray, I want a DNA test because this kid is too smart. I love the and, idea of Maury being Murray, by the way. What did I say? <laughs> no, it's I say no, Murray. Oh my great. god, that's the it's biggest so Freudian slip ever. Maury, give me a DNA test because this kid is way too smart. And speaking of smart kids, walking back from Shul, Hudson, who spent a considerable time of the Kabbalah Shabbat staring at the Geniza box in our shul looks at me and says, yeah, I have a halachic question for you. I was like, okay, what? It's like, sometimes during weekdays, you pray with your Sidur app on your iPhone. It's like, that is correct. He said, what happens if at the exact moment when you read God's name, the phone falls to the ground and breaks? The last thing you saw on that phone was Hashem's name. At that point, is it considered like a holy text? Do you need to put that broken iPhone in the Geniza? In the Geniza. I was like, wow, uh, we're done here. <laughs> here, start your own yeshiva. You, you don't need to go back to fourth grade tomorrow. The student has become the teacher. So to, the, to my two children who are much smarter than I ever was or ever will be, mazel tov to both. And clearly you get it all from your mom. I have a mazel tov to our colleague, Courtney Hazlett, who lives in L.A. and we had never met her. And she came to New York last week and it was awesome to see her. We had a lot of conversation over Slack. And she's tall. She's, about how tall she's she like was. like our yeah. team. I yeah. totally lost. I lost the betting pool on that. I said she's a tasteful 5'5". Five five. <laughs> I don't know out. how tall she is. She was tall. She's a bombastic 5'10". And uh, our whole team got together last week uh, at Tanya Singer's house in Scarsdale, New York. And it was amazing to just be with everyone and see everyone IRL um, and see how tall people were. I think it's really important. I'm still in the sugar rush from, from, from this one. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team includes the tall Courtney Hazlett, the less tall Tanya Singer, the rather tall star Fred Minader, Daron Risquet, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. And pretty soon we'll have pictures up of us modeling the swag at tabletstudios.com. So just be refreshing that website until we're up there. Episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Every six months, I have to mention that I once saw them play Aaron Matz and Elaine Blair's wedding, and it was the most rocking wedding music I've ever heard. They don't really do wedding music, but they will. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. We come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.